Melbourne. So we'll just say welcome to both of them now. <laughs> <clears throat> so, I also welcome, not welcome, I also acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and thank our um, welcome very much for her words and her song. I thank Aileen and uh, Johan for your invitation to speak. Let me share with everybody the um, invitation. That, uh, that you sent, so you know where we're starting from. I should say, I thought I had an hour, so can I eat into a little bit of the... Okay, I'll do it. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, so the invitation was as follows. We'd like for you to reflect on the moment in Australia in which you wrote the provincialism problem. This is the same moment the Australia Council for the Arts is created and the IMA and EAF in Adelaide are established. From there, could you discuss what is the same today and what may have changed? Okay, that's where we're starting from. But I'm really glad that after I talk and after Helen has made her comments, to which I really look forward, um, we'll have panel discussions led by my friends and colleagues in the, in the front row uh, here. Um, because the questions of art institutions versus institutions created by artists and the question of publicness are really the key developments, the key things that have emerged from what I'll be talking about and what I've been asked to consider. So I'm the historical background to what's going to happen um, in, for the rest of the day. But the language used in those titles is, is itself very interesting because those of us who came together in the 60s and 70s in the artist collectives, the meeting places, the exhibition spaces and the occasional publications were disposed against institutionalization. We saw it as anathema to the critical independence that, is inspired, that inspired our work. We also, of course, saw the need to develop platforms on which that spirit could flourish. We just didn't expect them to last. And that's, that's something to think about, uh, especially not beyond the point which they'd achieved their immediate goals. So the idea of an institution evolving and reinstitutionalizing itself was actually not present in a lot of the initial thinking, although it was in some, like here, which was based on the contemporary arts society beforehand. So there is continuity, but also I'll try and bring out today a leap into something different. What's the same is the question and what may have changed? To do my assigned topic some justice, I've actually got to go back a little bit in time, before 1975. We could go back to the 1870s, the whole avant-garde tradition, we won't do that. But we should recall at least the Contemporary Arts Society founded in London in 1910 to promote acquisitions of modern art by major British museums. At that time, the words modern and contemporary meant art not more than 20 years old. But it also meant in practice European, especially French painting, which was regarded by the major museums and the Royal Academy artists as unproven as art, unproven art, and foreign to boot. The founders of the Contemporary Art Society in London, the Bloomsbury Group, such as Roger Fry, nonetheless wanted to see that work in the national collections. They had a larger vision. And soon after, Contemporary Art Society sprang up in the many in the capital cities of many of Britain's settler colonies, notably Canada, South Africa, and here. And I quote the charter of the Melbourne branch as being the most articulate as to the chief purpose of these contemporary art societies, the precedence to where we're standing. I quote, by the expression contemporary art is meant all contemporary painting, sculpture, drawing, and other visual art forms, which is or are original and creative all which strive to give expression to contemporary thought and life, as opposed to work which is reactionary and retrogressive, including work which has no other aim than representation. So already in 1938, when that was written, we can recognize some of the elements that continue to inspire independent art spaces today. First and foremost, there's the immediate need of artists 
um, who are unrecognized by the major reputation conferring institutions, markets, and interpreters to have their work seen, to have their work enter a realm of public display. So it might add its voice to the discourse of art, a discourse which the, these people sense is resonant with the silent whispers of an ever-expanding past, we're thinking about time here, with a kind of increasingly loud cacophony, cacophony if you like, of, of present sounds, and with some murmurings of what they hope will be a, an infinite future for art. So that's the first inspiration. The second one is that everyone knew, everyone involved knew that this was going to be a battle, not only against the entrenched academies, but also against other candidates for leadership in shaping the future of art. Third, artists knew that they could not do this acting on their own. And even today, the idea of an individual artist acting on uh, by herself opening the studio, hoping someone will come. That's actually very rare. It's a marginal uh, activity, even in a place like New York. Other art world actors, critics, are too few and by nature loners. Curators in those days and right up to the 1970s were almost entirely defined by their service to collections within major museums whose priorities did not include an open embrace of contemporary art. And that's more recent than it, uh, than it may seem. And now the museums are trying to recover what they didn't do uh, during the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s in this country. Art schools felt that their responsibilities ceased after they'd provided an initial skills-based training. And while university art history was focused almost entirely on the art of the past, commercial galleries were thin on the ground and necessarily committed to supporting those few artists whose work could be readily sold. So in these circumstances, mutually sustaining shared action was needed, as was some kind of exhibitionary venue that was not driven by commerce, that stood in the intermediate zone between the intensely personal privacy of the studio, which in those days, I'm talking the 60s, 50s, 60s and so on, was intensely personal and private, and the absolutely public realm of the museum, which is the absolute opposite uh, as a condition for art. So, um, I'm sorry, I could have actually shown you the Contemporary Art Society's uh, statement, but I read it out. Um, so a key point I want to make is that this zone, this, this in-between zone, is itself crucial to the life and health of art when we understand art to be a reflexive practice undertaken by all involved, that's to say artists primarily, but also curators, critics, collectors, administrators, historians, and spectators. So the game is not simply to get artworks from the studio into the museum, from privacy into publicity, from the present into history. The individuality of the studio is not sacrosanct. Avant-garde groups formed during the modern era for good reasons, and there are equally good reasons why in contemporary conditions many artists commit to participatory practice. Similarly, at the other end of this false dichotomy, Alan Caprow was not joking when he spoke during the 60s of art museums as mausolea, or mausoleums, cemeteries for the kind of art he believed that the world needed most. So entirely other domains for the making and circulation of artistic ideas and actions had become a necessity, as had the need to establish at least temporary platforms for those purposes. So here's, I think, the deeper seeding ground for the independent art space as we have come to know it today. Deciding just how to establish such platforms is the fourth element that's been consistent throughout this history. In most respects, the individuals who came together for this purpose simply worked out how to go forward within the pragmatics of their immediate situation, obviously. But they also always drew on models that they believed were successful in the past in their own localities or those that they had experienced as working well somewhere else. This is where the inequities of provision between metropolitan art centres and cultural peripheries come into play. 
because during the period we're considering the provincialism problematic is as relevant to the building of platforms for communication and exhibition as it is to the dynamics shaping art practice uh, itself. I'll talk a bit more about that later in the talk, but right now I want to emphasise a few points about the decade before 1974, which is the lead up to the accelerated growth of alternative platforms for art around that time. So a full history of the emergence of these platforms would trace many false starts, but also note many instances of persistence against the odds between the 30s and the 70s. I'll just list, of course, the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, started 1947, the ICA in Boston, 1948, uh, CAIAC, the Centre for Art and Communication in Buenos Aires, 1967. There's many we could list, but we're focusing on Australia and the lineaments of what became known as an art world came into shape uh, in the 10 years before the 1970s. American philosopher Arthur Danto used the expression the art world as the title of a famous article in 1964. His own experiences in the New York art scene triggering the idea that it is the language used within a specific community rather than some abstract or essential definition that establishes the meaning of core value terms um, such as art. In the same year, Sydney publisher Ewer Smith took the risk of reviving the Turlian magazine Art in Australia, sorry, Art in Australia, which went from 1916 up to the middle of the war, 1942, when they ran out of paper, under the title Art and Australia. The editor, Mervyn Horton, obviously felt that the quantity and quality of art being made locally justifies such a step the enterprise would be supported by a sufficient readership, enough advertisers to justify the venture. So there's the cover of volume one, number one. It's got 74 pages, mostly devoted to survey articles on Australian painting since 1945 by uh, painter and critic James Gleeson, sculpture by sculptor Lenton Parr, 19th century art by curator Daniel Thomas, an illustrated appreciation of the work of Ian Fairweather, you'll be pleased to know, and two unusual articles. One on contemporary Japanese woodblock printing, Ruben would know that article, and other extracts. One other was extracts from the diary that Russell Drysdale kept when he went to visit the engravings of Gallery Hill near Port Hedland. So an indigenous presence um, right there, as also in Fairweather's paintings. All the articles are devoted to descriptions of artworks or techniques. There's not one word about context, infrastructure, or theories. Yet 10 pages are given over to an art directory, which is why I've mentioned it. Lists the quarterly exhibition schedules for quite a number of state and commercial galleries, some recent auction prices and state gallery acquisitions, as well as dozens of art prizes and their recent winners. By 1970, art prizes, which were driving a lot of what had happened, what was happening in Australian art up to that point, uh, had receded somewhat in importance as establishers of reputation, sources of income, and attractors of public interest. Daniel Thomas, in the introduction to this book, um, 1969, uh, noted that it was in fact the arrival of dealers' galleries in some numbers which has characterized the years since the 50s. In uh, the 19, uh, sorry, 1963 edition that I showed you before, listed as far as Queensland went, the Douglas, Johnson, Johnstone and Morton galleries, alongside the QAG at that point. By December 1975, it listed 30 galleries in this um, state, including, I'm um, sorry, um, it listed Let's see, five other galleries apart from Johnson, um, three of them in Surfers Paradise. In, 19, um, in Sydney in the same year, 1963, there were six galleries listed alongside the Arco in New South Wales. By 1971, there were 30, including two in Newcastle and one in Bathurst. There were also five people writing art criticism in Sydney on a weekly basis at that time. Similar changes occurred in Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, and Hobart. 
Daniel Thomas noted, these changes from art societies to dealers' galleries might seem a change from standards policed by the artists themselves to the low standards of the mass market. But he remarked, um, in any case, many dealers operate more as enlightened art patrons than as profit-making concerns. And I can affirm that to a degree from my experience as a critic during this period. Gaurier did it to a degree um, in Sydney and Melbourne under Anne Lewis and Max Hutchison. Much more obviously, Frank Waters, uh, Geoffrey Legg eventually did it in Sydney, Tolano in Melbourne under George Mora, and the Contemporary Art Society in Adelaide did, did this. Um, but that's some, it's not many. So Daniel was being optimistic about the many. And while they certainly sold what work they could, their preference was to support younger, adventurous, even difficult artists on a consistent basis. And this, in the circumstances, was an important platform in building a broader public interest, the broader public interest that continues today in the work, for example, in this city of the Milani Gallery, which is quite exceptional uh, in the commitment that it has to contemporary practice. It's a tendency that was formalised in 2008 in Sydney when Gene Sherman established the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation after trading for over 20 years as a commercial dealer. But overall, that type of commitment is still a matter of some and not many from the commercial sector. What's coming out in those examples is mobility between modes, modes of practice, modes of exhibiting platforms. It's no surprise that in small outworlds like the ones that were around at that time, multitasking individuals did not hesitate to create infrastructure around themselves. Um, Sydney people will remember Elwyn Lynn, artist, editor, art critic, curator, everything, did everything. Um, in Melbourne, John Reed moved constantly between being a private patron, a supporter of a virtual artist colony at Heidi, amongst other things there, a private gallery director, president of the Victorian chapter of the Contemporary Art Society and director of the City's Museum of Modern Art, 1958 to 66, which was in effect a, um, a space like this one is now. I happen to have a slide of the Young Minds exhibition staged in that gallery in August, September 1963. There's a brief note inside the catalogue that's very relevant to our thinking about these kinds of spaces. The young mind is the aim of this, ex of this exhibition, not to discover artists or form a new style, but to show the public the work of young artists who have begun to think and work independently of the art school. Young artists who are accepting the challenge of contemporary art rather than hiding in the achievements of 60 years ago, and so on. So young in, in this case meant about 20 years of age. And the exhibitors who John Reed and um, uh, a couple of others selected included some people who did go on to notable careers as artists, Robert Jacks, Les Cossatz, Paul Partos, Geoffrey Shaw and Guy Stewart, as well as some who went on to notable careers in other fields, Graham Blundell, uh, Michael Goss and Jane Eyre, the filmmaker. So from these beginnings, artist-run galleries sprung up in the 60s, deliberately devoted to encouraging and promoting a type of art um, being made by what later would be called early career artists, not even emergent artists. These are terms that came up when the thing became systematised. Art that wasn't welcomed in other exhibitionary venues. Uh, obviously founded in April 1966 by a small group of artists recently returned from London and New York, Central Street Gallery was the most innovative exhibitionary venue of the period in Sydney. Forgive the picture, Tony looks, looks better. Um, Bruce Pollard established Pinacothica in Melbourne on a closely similar model. Both were devoted to hard-edged colour field painting, although differently inflected between the two cities. And success actually was quite swift. By 68, the work of the stable of artists from basically these two galleries, plus a few others, um, dominated the exhibition that opened a new building of the National Gallery of Victoria on St Kilda Road, The Field. By 1970, the Central Street artists had achieved their goals and their art practices diversified beyond whatever could be encompassed by a single style, too encompassed by a single style in my critique of the time. So the owners gave over their Sydney space to the Contemporary Art Society 
as a place to show exhibitions curated to instruct and encourage members, uh, not simply as, as has been the practice to stage annual shows of work selected from submissions from among the membership. That was the previous old academy style model. Situation Now was an exhibition that was the first show in that space. So here's an example, and there are many of them including here, of an earlier artist-led alternative community and venue updating its approach as times changed. But it, in most places it, it was not sustained. It was sustained here and also in Adelaide. Founded in 1942, the Contemporary Art Society was one of the few branches to keep going and still is very effective, above all in its publication, Contemporary Art and Visual Culture Broadsheet, which I think is one of the best art magazines in the country. So creating and diversifying visual art structure is not simply done for the sake of doing it. It's not a natural process like photosynthetic conversion. The energy goes into it because all involved know, either instinctively or explicitly, that it's a necessary but never sufficient condition for the emergence of consequential art. So we come back to the four elements that I mentioned at the beginning as the essential drivers of the apparatus. New art is usually the term of choice, or was the term of choice at that time in the 60s and 70s. Contemporary art is what we called in retrospect. So what were the specifics of the situation that led to the emergence of independent art practices as a key ingredient in this mix. Uh, the heading here is provincialism then. So I vividly recall the conversations or many conversations with Bernard Smith that led him to make the claim in the 1971 edition of his classic book, Australian Painting, and I quote him, there have only been two really avant-garde groups in the whole history of Australian art. The group of young painters who introduced impressionism to Australia with their exhibition, Nine by Five Impressions, in 1889 and Central Street. So he makes that claim in his book, the edition of 1971. And then he adds something that's in a way more interesting for us. It has been much more usual in Australia for new ideas in the visual arts to be accepted gradually as the result of the work of a congruent, congruent, um, of individuals sharing some ideas and attitudes in common, but much more ready when pressed to assert their differences than what they held in common. Now, he obviously had in mind his own experience with the Antipodean group. He wrote the manifesto, you remember, they had one exhibition and everyone disavowed it one day later, or in fact, the same night. Um, the next thing he presumed was that new ideas came from elsewhere, as the sentence concluding these comments made clear. He said, in such a fashion, post-impressionism, expressionism, surrealism, and Dada entered the country. He could have added abstract expressionism and pop to that list, but he could not have added conceptualism, performance, anti-form, or feminist art, as each of these were developed here as they were throughout the world, primarily, although of course not exclusively, through one or another form of collective action. Connected, world-connected action, but collective action. So that already starts to announce a shift from where um, Bernard was coming when he made his comments about the avant-garde. So we're coming to the core change that was occurring during the decade from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. Um, and I think the key difference is that for a number of artists in many different places throughout the world, at that time, belief in avant-garde possibility had come back again to become absolutely central to their practice, but on a scale that was at once local but also international. Previous avant-garde's were mostly um, local or regional in character. They were inspired, I'll say we as well here, by the small groups of radically innovative artists in France, Italy, Germany and Russia in the early 20th century who we did admire virtually unconditionally and believed that a group of artists working together in Sydney or Melbourne, even in Adelaide, Brisbane and Perth could contribute in original ways 
to the profound changes in art that were happening everywhere, which we knew were happening from magazines, letters and visits. We knew they were happening. So banishing their previous provincialism, their locality, their parochialism, these artists would be the first avant-garde in the history of Australian art, but they'd also be part of an avant-garde, an international one that was changing art everywhere. That was the dream for the artists around Central Street, the people in Pinacothica, um, the artists devoted enormous energy to this end, but so did exceptional patrons. And here we have a private individual again, like John Keldor, who understood from the beginning, that's to say in 1969, that paying for the linkages between art cultures was the most enlightened form of local patronage. He began, of course, by bringing Christo to Rap Little Bay, which was a transformative experience for many of us. This outlook was shared by new institutions, such as the Power Institute, um, in some of its teaching program, um, but mainly through the Power Gallery, at a time when local state galleries rarely collected international art, instead relying on travelling exhibitions such as Two Decades of American Painting, which came here in 1967. The increased affordability of frequent international travel and accelerated communication across networks of like-minded artists were important factors in these efforts to internationalise the local uh, setting. Uh, I just saw yesterday a film that Peter Kennedy and Barbara made um, about their visits to New York and so on, literally to show back, to show to artists back here in Australia. So it's precisely to bring about such a dynamic situation that provincialism had to be understood in all of its distorting manifestations and ways found to break its debilitating bind. Just how to do so, however, led to a number of debates. Um, you've, I'm sure, read uh, much of this material. I know many of you here have, but let me just quote an extract to remind the younger members of the audience about some of the language and some of the ideas that were at stake. This is from a lecture given to the Contemporary Art Society in New South Wales branch on November the 16th, 1970. It's called Changes in Art and Criticism. A little controversial at the time. I quote myself in this case. There are a number of ways of changing the situation, but few of them are available to the Australian artist who wishes to break the inevitabilities of his provincial situation, his, you know, there is no future in turning back to the odd manifestations of peculiarly Australian art because there are no continuing traditions in Australian art worth extending or building on. None. This is 1970. Without the social pressure of a metropolitan centre, few if any artists in our provincial situation can derive anything for their art out of the experience of being an artist as such. That refers to the dream, the romantic notion of what it was just to be an artist. The difficulties of qualified imitation and of trying to impose an avant-garde situation on Australian society have already been pointed out. I spent most of the lecture on those. There remain three positive alternatives. Leaving for the Metropolitan Centre and staying there, blatant imitation, or directing oneself towards changing the nature of art. So I went on to note that the first option could break the visit and return cycle, so typical of Australian artists' biographies, expatriation, repatriation. I gave Ashil Gorky as a clear example of a great original art being produced on the basis of unmitigated imitation over many years. And I concluded with these words about the third option. But to me, the challenge to fundamentally change art, to open it out to the kind of moral and social relevance and pertinence that it has not had except fitfully for centuries is the most exciting alternative available to artists anywhere, including with no special provision Australia. It means a break with the old masters. Clement Greenberg had just been in town celebrating the old masters. It means ignoring their standards. It means discarding the object from sculpture. It probably means giving up painting altogether. It means opening up buildings so that a box will never again compartmentalise a man. It means fundamental approaches which are different to the metropolitan-provincial dichotomy and which could finally emancipate art in this country. So a little indication of some of the passion of the time. The key point, however, is working with others to fundamentally change the nature of art. And that set a really high bar 
But it is one that has motivated me and people I've worked with throughout most of my life. I haven't given that up as a, as a dream. It motivated clearly Inhibitress, which was active in Sydney 1970 to 72. The EAF was founded on this basis. IMA and PICA, similar, gradually, um, these ideas were there. It drove out language activity in New York, within which provincialism was seen, especially by Ian Byrne, Mel Ramson and myself, as a core problematic, to be seen, taken on, seen as problematic, to be worked on and worked through, worked over, worked at. The ideas developed in the debate in Australia were, were obviously, in the early 70s, were obviously the basis of my essay in our forum, um, but I benefited crucially from Ian's critical input, as I did from Mel's and that of the editors. What my New York experience showed me, compared to the stuff I've just read to you, was that in the current world circumstances, every art context, whether it conceived of itself as dominant, as the New York art world did, or as dependent, as the Australian art world did, or simply accepted the situation as somehow how things are, everyone had become provincial in a mutually destructive spiral. So it's pretty appropriate to cover this Bob Morris work. It had even incorporated the idea of the avant-garde, turning it into an ideology of corporate modernism. So in Ian's words, we had to conceive a whole new game and that had become an urgent necessity. So the introductory statement, as you see down the bottom there, provincialism, I quote, appears primarily as an attitude of subservience to a hierarchy of externally imposed cultural values. It's not simply the product of a colonialist history, nor is it merely a function of a geographic location. Most New York artists, critics, collectors, dealers, and gallery goers are provincialist in their outlook, attitudes, and positions within the system. Members of art worlds outside of New York and every continent, including North America, are likewise provincial, although in different ways. The projection of the New York art world as a metropolitan center for art by every other art world is symptomatic of the provincialism of each of them. So I illustrated the article with images of works by Ty Parks, um, Tony Colling and uh, Ken Mortensen, um, let's see, Nigel Nengen, John Armstrong, uh, Bert Flugelman's parodic Australian cottage from the Mildura Sculpture Shape Show of 73. These works raised the question, can the provincialist bind be broken, to which I answered in italics, as the situation stands, the provincial artist cannot choose not to be provincial. This meant artists everywhere, not just outside New York. It was a bleak assessment, occasioned much anguished and angry comment, but I think was recognized by many people at the time as true. That, I think, accounts for some of the impact of the article but I was not offering a prognosis of the future or an eternal state of affairs. I was clearly arguing against the situation as unnatural and something that needed to be radically transformed. So thus, the last uh, part of the article ends up with approach really uh, that invites, um, uh, as we believe, everyone was not going to become overnight a member of the International Socialists, but my invitation was to, for artists and art world actors to project our own uncertainties and fallibilities undisguised and to value the differences of cultures relative to ours. So on the basis of those two things, which might sound faint and weak, but, but they were, were strong values, I think, and those are the ones that have actually persisted. I concluded with the statement, there are no ideologically neutral cultural acts. So the cry was to act in a counter-ideological way, in a context loaded with negative ideologies. And this is, this will echo today. It's essentially an ethical appeal to art world actors to work together to create an open field of genuine avant-garde possibility, um, one which artists everywhere had the chance and could take up the challenge to transform altogether without the dice being loaded against them because where they came from. That was the goal of that, uh, that article. But if we look back into the 70s um, in Australia, we can see that a number of people were taking up that kind of challenge and trying to build this sort of framework. 
But there's major differences between the two situations then and now, which I should underline. They mainly have to do with scale and with scope. The number of artists who have come to expect to make some kind of living as artists has increased exponentially, as has the number looking to sustain a career in what we used to call the support systems for art. These support systems have themselves become quite extraordinary. And um, they've become what in my recent writing, the curating writing I've been call, calling, following Tony Bennett, a visual arts exhibitionary complex. I mean, just look at this, for example. These are a string of words of descriptions. This is historically, um, but also it's hierarchical. It's about the weight of, you know, visual arts cultural power going down and then pushing itself upwards. Um, this is not even a complete list of the kinds of organisations and institutions that um, in well-provisioned countries such as most Australian capital cities, uh, United States, most of Europe, and some very few other parts of the world. This is this, this is the art world. This is the scene. This is the the complex through, within which and through which not only artists but curators and administrators can move, uh, can operate. You can see somewhere if you keep reading down, you'll find independent art spaces uh, in there. Um, so it's very complex. Now, exciting. There are many obvious things about it, and I'll, I'll go. I won't talk about them in detail. There's mobility up and down and across this lattice-like structure. It's grown with what seems like an irresistible logic. And it's also the vision of what an art world should be like that is being adopted all over the world, particularly in Asia now, as people are building this kind of infrastructure. In China, building it with almost no work to show in it, no curators to sustain it, and audiences and un. un um, uneducated audiences um, entering it in huge numbers. It's a self-replenishing system, but it's also subject to entropy, like all other systems of this kind. Um, a couple more comments about where this one came from in terms of Australia before I conclude with some uh, more general comments about the situation facing us now. I may be the only person in the room who can remember when the only vehicle for federal support for the arts in this country was the Commonwealth Arts Advisory Board. Who's ever heard of that? Commonwealth, a few people have heard of that. Um, it was founded in 1912, not that I was, but, um, and it led to the, the main thing it did was help um, create the National Gallery in Canberra. Uh, it was absorbed into the Australia Council in 1975, the council, in fact, was founded in 67, but promulgated in, in 75. So a few words. I could spend another hour on the Australia Council. I won't do that. But a couple of things are important, particularly because of the situation we're now facing here uh, in Australia. The council's um, principles reflect the class tensions in Australian society and the contradiction between elite art art for art's sake, um, art for the relatively few, uh, and those who believe in art's autonomy, and the idea that art should somehow come out of the egalitarian and democratic impulses of uh, Australian society. H.C. Coombs and people like that um, established three core purposes for the council to enable increased, preferably total, access to the arts, to make them genuinely public, to promote excellence in the creation of the arts, and to foster Australianness or a sense of national identity both locally and abroad. They're the three principles. They're all utterly contradictory to each other in various ways, but integrating them, working them together, uh, is something that, in effect, the system has been doing and indeed many artists have been doing in their own work. Uh, just look at the Robert McPherson work in the gallery at the moment about the Boss Drovers and you'll see it there. Um, the structure, of course, you remember there were different boards established. Uh, board members were influential in each field. There's a long history there, which is really best um, pursued if you want to research it by looking up David, the name David Throsby and his statistical analyses of all of this. The contradictions between access and excellence became evident quite um, 
quickly. However, uh, that's to say most of the boards gave most of their money to the opera houses and the big theatre companies and so on and so forth, the established institution. But the Visual Arts Board and the Aboriginal Arts Board were exceptions, and they have laid important ground to where we are now. The Aboriginal Arts Board supported arts centres across the country. It bought art by artists all over, from all over the country, from many different communities. The Indigenous Art Network in this country has evolved and survived constant predictions of its collapse due to the market and its own inherent weaknesses. It's actually survived all of those things from all the crises and has become a success story that is unmatched in world terms as a network of arts centres, because that's what they are, alternative arts centres. The VAB prioritised initially individual uh, artists, giving them lots of money, but also spent a lot of time supporting the kind of networks that we're speaking about in a nascent form here, not to the extent of Holland's living wage scheme, Germany's nationwide network of Kunsthalle, or the parallel galleries in Canada. But the VAB logo is everywhere um, from that period. Magazines such as Art and Text, Art Network, Eyeline, overseas studios and residencies, Venice Biennale representation, touring exhibitions in this country and abroad. Uh, abroad. Professional organisations, the Art Association of Australia for Art Historians, one for art and design schools. Reports, NAVA. NAVA is also an exceptional body in terms of advocacy, which often was advocacy against what the council itself was doing. So it's rather impressive. And although I've criticised it time and time again over the years, and many of us have, we should acknowledge the work of the visual arts officers who have shared some of the values that, that drive the sector that we're, that we're in. I can recall names such as Katrina Brown, Martin Muntz, Ross Wolfe, Anna Waldman and Deborah Mills. There are many others that people here will know. Mention of the latter reminds us of administrators who actually succeeded in innovating within governmental support itself. And Deborah was pivotal to the work of the Community Arts Board during its years as a separate board and to supporting initiatives such as Art and Working Life, which was driven by Ian, Ian Burney and Millis and, and many of the people here. Um, uh, and a very, itself an important platform for work and establishing artists in trade unions and so on. So let me focus now amongst that picture on the alternative art space, whether question alternative or independent. In 1977, Daniel Thomas noted that there's this whole new network of small galleries in Australia with a good basis of VAB finance, their low budget, 25,000 a year. That was low in 77. Uh, low technology, they have no air conditioning, and they're above all compared with uh, concern with contemporary art. EAF, Union George Patton Gallery at Melbourne University Union, university galleries are very important in this structure. Sculpture Centre in Sydney, where um, Mike, I recall, did his first performance, the arm performance. Um, and um, the IMA here. Let me just give one quick story to show how fragile all of this is and from where it began. EAF in Adelaide, spied primarily by Donald Brooke, uh, who dreamed of a place to test his theory that art was by its nature experimental action. He said, it models possible forms of life and makes them available to public criticism. In his applications for funding, he mentioned the ICA. He also mentioned the science-connected places such as uh, the labs at MIT and the experiments in art technology. He actually approached uh, a gallery owner in Adelaide, a sort of Josh Milani type person called Richard Llewellyn. But unfortunately, unlike Josh, he ran out of money <laughs> that, at that particular moment. So, it was actually a VAB staffer, probably Leon Perossian, who asked Donald to apply to the VAB for money to reapply. They gave him $5,000 for running costs and the salary of one secretary. So they had a little bit of help with the rent from the Craft Authority and the first director of the EAF spent um, his three or four months as director with friends building a wooden structure inside the factory 
to become the EAF itself. And uh, it so happens I was there because I was talking with Noel in an art language show at the um, Art Gallery of South Australia uh, at the time. And we did a, um, a, a talk, a conversation at the EAF. Connections yet again, through Ian North in that particular case. So these are chancy beginnings and they're typical of the way in which all the art spaces uh, have begun. The stories of them are now starting to be written. Uh, Ursula Sulakowska and Peter Anderson have uh, written um, small books and articles about the ones here, which you'll be familiar with. And hopefully that kind of history is happening, being written all over the, all over the country. There's been some long-running spaces that have been supported, um, such as the Photography Centre uh, and so on. In 1983, there was a change in the approach of the VAB to support one major centre in each uh, capital city and lots of smaller ones. Betty Churchill, um, lamented Betty, was crucial in this. She was chairperson of the Visual Arts Board and she was concerned about the fate of recent art graduates 99% of whom, it was assessed at the time, failed to make a living as an artist in the 10 years after graduating. So this cohort remains the driver of this whole sector that we're in and most of the audience that's uh, in front of me right now. During this period, arts funding uh, was split roughly 50-50 between federal on the one hand and state and local on the other. Liberal national coalitions, funded the first steps that I was describing, um, but Labor Party governments at all levels have been the major supporters. Whichever party's in power, artists and, org and organisations remain bedeviled by, a constant, by an inconstant switching between long-term and project funding. Whatever the party, the neoliberal Pac-Man continues to chomp away at the public economy and the projectification of arts practice and arts institutions increases proportionally. But the core thing behind all this, driving it, is the nature of art practice um, itself, um, not just providing for that practice. The provincialism uh, analysis doesn't apply in anywhere near the same way that it did uh, 40 years ago. The real problem's a little bit different. The problem is, in fact, most people, when they cite the article, redo the heading they call the provincialism solution and spend a lot of time describing how things have changed for the better. Um, for example, they say there's a worldwide spread of biennales, the decentralisation of arts support throughout Europe, there's internet connectivity, the international change of residencies, the ease and constancy of travel, the post-colonialisation of parts of some of the centres, the emergence of a global art. So this seems like a very happy story um, that we're all part of. One thing about this picture is that whatever global art is, it's not avant-garde in character. Changing art as such has not really been an option since the pushbacks of the 1980s by old mediums, markets and political reaction. However, that pushback has failed to dominate, except in the minuscule but very visible top end of the market. If you look at contemporary art across the world, it's small-scale specific and local changes that are really making the whole thing shift. To become, as I'm fond of putting it, an art from all over the world, an art of the world, that's to say about the world as it is, and an art that might be an art for the world, this is what takes us beyond the terms that defined the situation uh, in the 1970s. So the question becomes, has the provincialism problem actually reappeared in another guise? To a degree, I think it has. It's in an updated version, um, an updated version of it. You can see since the years 2000, especially in places that house major markets for art, concentrations of galleries and leading auction houses. The structure of the art market at its highest levels is a concentrated version of the hierarchical, exclusionary, exclusionary rule setting that underlaid the dominance of the metropolitan art world during late modern times. What we're trying to work against. Um, 
In our contemporary condition, it's instantiated in the home basis of finance capital that aspire to this prominence. But it does that, in essence, in purely economic terms and for primarily economic reasons. So this provincialism, again, from the top, is going to be imposed again in this narrowness and under the guise of a sort of global, global contemporary uh, capital C, capital A. So that leaves me, in conclusion, wanting to put in front of you, uh, oh, sorry, that's, we'll leave that, leave that out for this talk, um, four challenges, four contemporary art um, spaces. Contemporary art spaces have their own national funding body, chaos, as do the ARIs, as do the art and design centres. So things look healthy. Um, and compared to many places, Australia is in a very privileged position. And the book I'm working on now, Conversations with Curators, I spend some time talking with Zoe Butt, who many of you will know. And the struggle she has to make San artwork in Ho Chi Minh City. I mean, she's doing it, but in a context with almost none of that infrastructure that I described before. So here's the four challenges. Let me just put them as briefly and boldly as I can. Okay, the institutionalization problem. Um, so, contemporary art spaces with a strong track record, um, have a strong record of showing innovative artists, and in fact are presenting exploratory exhibitions by early career curators. If you build your exhibition, if you have as part of your regular programming, the work of artists who are reasonably well known, like Hito, Hito Stoll, um, very important artist to show, but that can actually raise the question, uh, how is that different from, from what I saw in the Art Institute of Chicago? show in the Art Institute as part of the project um, space. So that, that's a question. Um, if you do too much of that, do you institutionalise too much? It's a question. The fact that Aileen and Johan have come to Brisbane to direct the IMA for this phase of their careers and Australian curators with similar backgrounds have, were, are working at independent spaces not only in Asia but all the way around the world is a sign of the maturity of these networks. And I think of, of one aspect of their value, because they may be institutionalised in that regard, but they are institutionalised laterally. So they're platforms for innovating art and curating that are linked like nodes in a matrix, not least through their national, regional and international connections to similar spaces. That's really important, and that's evolved over the long time. Maria Lynn, has established cluster recently, spaces across Northern Europe. Zdenka Bonovanak has created the International, which links her very innovative museums in Ljubljana to similar spaces elsewhere. You've heard Charles talk about the Van Abbe Museum, but also to Salt in Istanbul. Um, so these examples show a kind of compulsive flow of values around the system. Um, and, but they do so laterally. The flow through the system goes up and down as the main institutions absorb that kind of energy uh, while keeping themselves pretty much the same kind of institution. So there's an interplay between the hierarchical movement and lateral movements. Second, keeping up with cultural innovation. The rise and rise of the artist as curator and the, and the concomitant growth of the curator as artist during recent decades was actually incubated and tested in the sector that we're talking about. Bern Kunsthalle was a small space dedicated to showing the work of members of a local artist association until Harold Zeman transformed it into a key centre for showing experimental art in Europe in a series of shows that exploded into attention in 1969 with When Attitudes Become Form. It's a legendary exhibition now. Collaboration between artists and uh, invited artists and the curator. In the book I'm working on now, Talking Contemporary Curating, Germana Chalant told me about the art politics of that moment. And um, very briefly, it was an effort to connect cities such as Bern, Turin, Amsterdam and London and exclude Paris and the German cities from that network. So kind of interesting political thing. And my discussion with Maria Lint in the same book reminds me that what she calls the curatorial 
is a mode of exhibiting that has emerged primarily from independent art spaces. So we then need to ask, where is curatorial innovation most, happen most evident in the whole complex today? And the answer actually is the private collection museum or foundation in terms of what gets most attention. They range from the refined modernism of the Pulitzer Foundation in St. Louis, for example, to the highly subjective dreamlike installations of Udessa Handelis. I've got to remember that when it has become form was funded by Philip Morris, so as the catalogue of the field show. Sponsorship has a relatively low level, although there are 11 sponsors of this show, <laughs> I saw. <laughs> Good, nice people supporting you. The moment, um, however, we've got to recognise certain private foundations are curating with an in intensity and focus and a degree of freedom that both state institutions and independent art spaces are struggling to maintain. In our region, Mona is the most obvious example, world-famous centre. And Sydney has a couple of venues that pursue a sustained exploration of contemporary Asian art, although in very different conceptual registers. I've already mentioned SCAF, and White Rabbit is the other one. Okay. Um, so private, although these are exceptional and positive places, mostly private museum collections are really tax dodgers for the 1%. They don't share the values that we've been speaking about um, so far. Thirdly, what is publicness? I'm really looking forward to this panel. and I'm going to stop talking soon so we can get to the panel. Um, and I'll now drop out a chunk of uh, text to do that. But uh, well, I hope it will take up the question of, of curating and indeed making art, having a core purpose of making public. Curating its purpose is to make art public, to bring it from the privacy of the studio or workshop or laptop to, main, to, to domains in which it may begin its public life, enter public discourse. If its work's been exhibited for, it's, it gets into a new public dialogue. If we went through that whole list of exhibitionary venues that I put on the screen before and asked how does each one make art public in ways specific to its position within the system, we might say that the independent art space provides a platform on which art making and curating enters publicness in a testamentary or indeed experimental way. It acts in a space further into the public realm than the art school gallery, which shows provisional or as if art, but it's less out there as a statement about art able to shape its public because art actually shapes public not just the institutions it's in. It's less out there, less certain that it can as yet say something distinct within arts already giving discourse than works chosen for a temporary show, say, in a museum of contemporary art. So it's, it's a very specific kind of testimony experimentality that, we're, that this kind of space uh, has encouraged and um, helped develop. So finally, I'll just speak about the, the gross ele elephant in the room under the heading of the reactionary uh, resurgence. So given my reminder early on about the basic principles that shaped the Australia Council, there's no small irony in the title of the organisation that Brisbane's own Senator George Brandis has chosen to dismember a significant section of the Australia Council's operations to radically deinstitutionalise it, you might say the National Programme for Excellence in the Arts, managed from inside his own ministry. Its core statement is this, the National Programme will allow for a truly national approach to arts funding, Australia Council no longer does that, will deliver on a number of government priorities, including national access to high quality arts and cultural experiences. As, as you know, it's removed 27% of Auscoast funding, 20 million a year for the next four years, and said that OSCO must not reduce funding to the major companies. This leaves very little for the sector we've been discussing. If you look at the 11-page draft document, it's full of procedures, procedures and very short on what it intends to fund. The lists, the areas that it lists are pretty much the same as the ones covered by OSCO, except it has this really important sentence. Ordinarily, we will not fund organisations. 
And that seems like a nothing little statement from a bureaucrat, but what it does is pull the rug out from under the whole domain that we've been speaking about, the one that supports the most exploratory questioning and critical art. It's a deliberate political act that has all the hallmarks of exercising an ideological agenda. I don't object to political actions exercising ideological agendas. I just object to these ones. And it's the right, he has the right to do that, it's been elected, but let's call it like it is, and let's swamp the ministry with applications for funding so these people learn where innovation actually comes from. Thank you.